The If Then podcast is brought to you by If Then Ventures, a community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. It should go without saying, but let it be said, absolutely nothing in today's conversation is legal, financial, or any other type of advice. However, the If Then community is great at connecting founders and startups with the right attorney, policy professional, or strategic advisor for their needs. If you're interested in joining or partnering with the If Then community, send me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to the show. Yes, we are back with another episode of the If Then podcast. And I am very pleased to present to you uh, former Latham and Watkins star associate and a uh, member of the Vaunted ASCOM committee, um, former litigation counsel, product counsel at Postmates, uh, and current assistant general counsel at insure tech company Hippo. It is Anna Bursis. Anna, how are you? Um, really happy to have you on the pot. How's it going? Doing well. Likewise, it's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to uh, chat this morning. Amazing, amazing stuff. So, Anna, I, I the main reason I wanted to have you on the pod is that you have had a, a a very kind of interesting set of milestones. I would say you've achieved in your legal career, going from big law where we met, you and I met, obviously as young summer associates uh, in the vaunted 2012 class of Latham and Watkins LLP, and spent a long time together as coworkers um, before yep. each of us moving on into tech and gaining different skills and skill sets. I'd love to talk to you about some of your experiences at Latham, how you transitioned into tech, some of the unique things that you were able to work on and the differences between those things. And in particular, I think you have some pretty strong insights into the effects that this type of work can have on people, how they can best navigate these things from a health perspective, from a mental perspective, from a self-reflective perspective. Where I really want to start is, before you were a lawyer, what drove you? What were some of the most significant interests or aspects of your life? I've got an interesting one for you. Before going to college from kind of fifth grade up until the age of 16, I was a rhythmic gymnast. Rhythmic Love gymnastics it. was made popular by old school. <laughs> uh, Will Ferrell jumping around with a ribbon, but... Uh, no, you were it, in it before it was popular. That's right. <laughs> Made popular by Will Ferrell. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, I took it really seriously, trained six to seven days a week, was incredibly passionate about it. And that was kind of my life for a lot of pre-college, pre-law school time. And so I think that that shaped me in a number of ways. I think that I had to be very dedicated to a sport in the same way that you, you know, put in those long hours at a firm like Latham, um, at a tech company. And so in a lot of ways, it did kind of shape my ability to sort of sit and focus for long periods of time and be solely focused on one thing that I was passionate about for a, you know, long number of years. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious because what I would say is that's a very specific sport or activity. Uh, I'm curious how a young 
girl in the Bay Area. You're in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah how, how, how a young girl from Marin gravitates towards rhythmic gymnastics. Yeah. So I was initially in artistic gymnastics, which is the more familiar sport um, with the balance beam, uneven bars, uh, floor exercise, and vaults. I was much too tall to continue on with that. <laughs> and then another student I remember in, I think, fourth grade in elementary school was a rhythmic gymnast and did it in a talent show. So I was able to kind of get the contact information from her about uh, her coach. Soon thereafter, joined a really awesome gym in Marin County. We had, you know, one Olympian was a coach. Um, another coach was a uh, world championship competitor. And so I was lucky enough to be in an area where this very rare Eastern European sport actually had this dynamite gym um, that was producing really uh, elite gymnasts. Yeah, I, you know, it, it makes sense. And like a lot of things, environment influences you. You were doing a sport, you were certainly dedicated to, you know, kind of some sort of performance aspect. And you saw an elite performer at a unique thing that maybe appealed to you or that you were able to take to. You found your people, you found your spot. It's easy to see how something like an individual sport, especially the kind of determination, the consistency to training can lead someone to be pre-selective to the type of person that eventually becomes a lawyer or forms those basis or skills, uh, whether you want to talk about the correlation or the causation, whatever. So let's talk about Honor the Lawyer. As mentioned, you and I started at Latham at the same time. Can you tell us what type of work you did largely at Latham and how you ended up doing that type of work? Yeah, so I think that my work at Latham mostly stemmed out of relationships I made during the first few years. I happened to have a mentor who was in the securities litigation group. By virtue of starting to work with her, I got on cases with other securities litigation partners, and it kind of went from there. I think that the San Francisco office was mostly antitrust, had some securities work, and then a little bit of white collar, and I didn't really going into it, have any preference for any of them. Um, so it was kind of by virtue of starting to work with folks in the securities group. I did find the cases interesting. I also liked a lot of the just complex commercial litigation cases I did. But yeah, it was a little bit of a uh, default into a practice group by virtue of working with good people that I wanted to keep working with. It sounds like you were at least able to have a reasonably broad practice, even if a lot of your work was focused on securities litigation. What skills do you think you took away from doing uh, that type of work? And, and maybe you can kind of talk to us about like what securities litigation is and what it entails and, and what you generally do as a securities litigator. Sure. Um, so in terms of what securities litigation is, the type of cases I mostly worked on were 10B5 cases. And so a public company suffers some severe stock price drop. There are allegations made by shareholders that the company either put out material false information into the market or omitted material information. Um, and as a result of that fraud, the stock price was 
inflated at some point in time and that drop, you know, caused damages to shareholders. It, that has really helped me working at private to public companies um, in-house. I think that I got familiarity with SEC filings and just an understanding of what triggers stock price drops or at least alleged stock price drops. Um, that's been extremely helpful to me, especially in my current role at Hippo, you know, looking at and preparing our 10K or quarterly financial statements. Um, you have a different eye for what a plaintiff's lawyer or the plaintiff's bar more broadly could kind of latch on to. It taught me kind of the different stages of a litigation from complaint all the way until a settlement or a trial. That was great experience to show me the entire litigation timeline, to understand from a client's perspective how expensive it is, and organizational skills to kind of be able to run a case from start to finish and ensure that everything is running smoothly and properly while maintaining good communication with the client. I like that even if you weren't working with the specific types of like the clients weren't tech startups or tech companies, you were able to take away some core set of skills from securities lit litigation, which is just kind of the, the knowledge of the securities process into skills that you would utilize in the future in a, in a different context. I think this is a good transition to talking about something that I definitely want to dive in deeper, which is your experience on the associates committee. I yeah. think that at most law firms, they have non-billable type work that associates can do to participate in firm administration. At Latham, I was on the recruiting committee for a couple of years, which I think fit my skill set. Uh, certainly not cut out to be someone on the associates committee uh, like yourself. <laughs> can you can you explain to us what that is and what like and what that entailed? What did you do? Sure. Well, first off, I think you could have been fantastic on the associates committee, but uh, I think that you were maybe more fun than me, and so recruiting, <laughs> recruiting was better. Um, so the Associates Committee is a, I think, distinct um, Latham thing. It is a group of associates and partners from each office globally. They would at least have one associate or one partner per office. There are a few things that the committee is in charge of. One, and perhaps the biggest one, is associates progression to partner or counsel. Um, this is very specific to Latham. The Associates Committee members on the progression subcommittee would get a list of files. These were associates in the seventh and eighth year classes, and you would get about 10 to 12 associates, and you would learn everything that there was to learn about these people. You would fly to different offices to have in-person interviews uh, with partners who supervise these associates we would go through pretty vigorous diligence on these associates. We would read all of their reviews, you know, meet one-on-one -on -one with their partner supervisors. Um, those were very interesting conversations because oftentimes what people put down on a piece of paper about an associate is very different than what I would learn when I was one-on-one -on -one with them in an office. 
Um, there were definitely politics going on in certain groups. Um, we were made aware of that when you would sometimes meet the practice group heads or chairs. Uh, you would meet with the department heads. And then you would spend, I believe, 10 days talking about each individual associate in the seventh and eighth year classes. Um, you would present your 12 or 10 associates to the entire group, and then you would make a recommendation as to whether they should be promoted to partner, promoted to counsel, or progressed without a call. And so they would you know, be a, an associate again. And so that was a kind of surreal experience uh, to be an associate on that committee. Um, I did a couple rounds of progression and you really see how the sausage is made. And, and that was yeah. a great experience for me. Um, super interesting. One of the best things I did at Latham by far. Progression is an important topic in every law firm. And this aspect of it where kind of every associate who is a seventh or an eighth year, meaning that if you, are, you have been at the firm for that long, there is some conversation around what's next for you because of the kind of general big law law firms stated up or out progression. Uh, and they'll all claim they don't really have that, but they do. Um, yeah. uh, uh, up or out uh, progression, you need to either be on track to making partner somewhere on a track and they can kind of move you forward or backward in that track or looking for a new job at some point. The unique aspect of what you were doing is that you were an associate as opposed to you know simply a group of partners or all of the partners of the firm evaluating these people. Latham had set up this committee where associates, um, including someone like you who were you know maybe a fifth fifth year, sixth year when you were doing this, mm -hmm. were act taking an active role in helping manage this and determining the progression of the attorneys who ostensibly and you know would hope to make partner and getting some insight into the political nature of humans still permeates despite what process you you slip into you know something like this at an at an organizational level so i guess like what do you what did you take away from understanding how the sausage is made you know you get to see the firm as a business as opposed to as an associate, I was really focused on kind of my individual cases and getting to a solution in those cases. I wasn't really thinking about the firm as a business and which practice groups bring in more money than others by virtue of the type of work that they're doing, the number of associates you can staff on any given matter or case. Um, so that was eye-opening to me. I think for me, the number one largest thing that I took away was I got to see associates who made partner and then really thrived, and then associates who made partner and really struggled. And of course, I put myself into their shoes and kind of thought about what would I be like if I made partner or counsel and securities litigation, how would that go? And I think that what I saw was that you have to really really love it. I think that I mm -hmm. got to see fantastic associates who were absolutely thriving and they were going to continue to thrive. And it really made me reflect on my experience and how I was feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. And I really didn't like what I was doing. I woke up every day, you know, after a certain amount of t point in time and 
really did not want to hit those major milestones that I think a lot of litigators really strive for, like taking depositions, going to trial, getting to do an oral argument. I wasn't excited by those things. I think that after being able to participate in some of those things, I was satisfied um, when, you know, the task was completed. But I kind of looked at myself and was like, I see other peers that are so driven by um, this litigation process, and they want to win so bad. And that's awesome. But I could tell in myself, I don't have that. And so let's, you know, give in-house a try and see how uh, that goes. And I think that what it showed me also is that regardless of kind of who you are at the firm, you're, you're going to be spending a lot of time doing this work. And so if you really don't like it, then I think I looked at myself and it was kind of like, I'm probably going to sign myself up for a career of unhappiness if I keep yep. on going this way. Cause personally, I just don't, get the satisfaction out of it that I think I would have needed to keep going at that pace. Yeah, I think you can see, and I had on the last episode, this podcast, I had a, a woman, Catherine Kirkpatrick boss, who mentioned that she knew from like the first second of being at the law firm, she wanted to be a partner and then, you know, became a partner and loved being a partner. And yeah. I think there's a lot of those people in my experience that you you can actually see that pretty early on and those people like you mentioned thrive but there's a not insignificant insignificant number of people that like making partner at a big law firm is this like booby prize that that you are granted and it's like more if, if you're not actually into the work and especially the work of being a partner which is somewhat different from the work of being an associate it's not a good situation and I, I think it's interesting that you were able to see that from the inside, or at least see some aspects of that from the inside, and having it inform on your own decision-making process in, in how you were going to direct your career. So there's a couple of things that I want to I touch on with you, and you mentioned some of those milestones, and I want to get to those. But to round out the conversation around the Associates Committee, you weren't just doing progression, if I recall, right? You were okay. also, there was evaluation of all of the Associates, their performance, their salaries, their bonuses, just kind of kind of checking in on the on folks' careers in general. Uh, can you talk about that aspect and you know how that kind of informed your work or what you learned about people? Yeah, no, you summarized it perfectly. So in addition to progression, um, the committee is also in charge of just the annual and then mid-year review cycles. And so we would again be assigned a group of associates review all of their reviews, sometimes talk to their supervisors. Um, I would sit down for usually an hour, sometimes more, with every associate who is junior to me and read their reviews verbatim <laughs> based on what you know partners and senior associates had written about them, and then have a human conversation with them about you know how, how are you? How are things going? What do you want? from this law firm? What do you want to do next year? What do you want to do in five years? And that was the most important time, I thought, in getting to deliver these reviews. It, 
half of it was reading off paper, but the really important part was getting to have a real conversation with all of the associates in the office and hear about what was going on with them and what they strove for in their overall careers. I got to meet with associates that I had never met before, and I heard about things that I had no idea were going on in their lives. I remember meeting uh, one associate for the first time to give him his review and heard that he was going through a divorce. I remember meeting with an associate for the first time and hearing that she was taking over custody of a relative's child. I mean, it was such an honor to serve in that role and get to interact with associates on that level and really showed me that there's so much happening in everyone's lives. It's a really interesting time when most associates are going through their time at Latham. It, it's usually in their 20s and it's a very transitional age, I thought. And so it was really amazing to get to hear stories from associates, understand that there was often more going on than you could pick up from just reading an associate's reviews. And the best part of my job was getting to really help people out and find a way for them. And, and sometimes that was being able to guide folks to somewhere beyond Latham or you know, something different within Latham. And I thought that that was a really rewarding part of being on the committee. Yeah, I mean, do you think that aspect of it, having the committee, having associates like yourself participating in this process was effective at helping other people like determine their careers, what they wanted to do, you know, break away from an abusive partner, uh, break away from the firm entirely, you know, et cetera? I hope so. I mean, I was pretty upfront with people that I spoke with that I didn't want to stay. And I try to do that now still when sometimes Latham Associates will hit me up on LinkedIn or send me a text. I try to let people know that there is a lot out there beyond Latham. I think that it's an incredible firm and I got so much out of it, but you can be a little bit tunnel visioned as an associate and it's a very lockstep path, but there's a whole you know, another world out there with a ton of opportunities. If you're feeling like, hey, I'm not really sure if I want to, you know, do this my entire career. Before we transition away from the law firm work, there's a notion or an idea like, you know, big law firm lawyers, they work a lot. But a lot of the work can be in these boom bust cycles, especially those like tougher parts. And a lot of them come with milestones. And you've mentioned things like going to trial. I never went to trial in my six years. And I got, I got, I got like a week away, I think like twice, but mostly what big law firms do is, is don't go to trial, but you, you did. So can you talk about how, how unique of an experience that is and how that, I don't know, affected your time there or, the, or other aspects of your career? Yeah, I had the opportunity. I believe I was a fourth year um, to get to do a six week. It was actually an international arbitration, but it was put on much like a trial and, and prepared for much like a trial. I made best friends during that experience. It was definitely a lot of time, but we were all going through it together and we were all in this war room. We got really close and that helped me get through 
the late nights, working every single weekend, staying in a hotel, and the arbitration was in the basement of the hotel, and so we weren't really getting a lot of sunlight, but we were all doing it together, and I think that I look back on that experience so fondly. I think that we also took on different roles that we sort of gravitated towards. I found that I loved knowing everything that was going on and being the organizer and quarterbacking the project management of it. Um, I think that I did not as much like the nitty gritty, you know, going, getting familiar with the documents and creating the direct exam and cross-examination outlines. I think I, I was happy to have learned it, um, but the project management and kind of larger strategic decision-making, I was definitely more interested in that. Um, and then I also got to see our client was there every single day sitting in. Um, our client's in-house counsel was there. And I remember thinking, how cool. <laughs> They're getting to watch this happen, make strategy decisions behind the scenes, sit in the war room with us but they're not necessarily doing the you know, painstaking, very detailed work um, on the actual case. And so I just remember thinking, how cool would that be to someday get to sit back and watch? Um, I also you know, found a lot about myself in that observation that I was totally fine being the one that's watching and not <laughs> cross-examining the witness. I was yeah. like, that sounds fantastic. I would love to have that backseat and get to make more business-driven decisions on, hey, are we actually going to, after this is said and done, try to settle with this other side, or are we going to let the arbitrators decide this case and potentially have it be a major event, negative event for the company? Uh, and so that was really cool to be able to see that. If all you criminal attorneys and uh, attorneys from trial-focused law firms are still are are still listening. Uh, yes, we recognize that we are softies. We never go to trial, but uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> unique unique experience for for people like uh, my myself and Anna, especially me, because I never did it. Let's talk about going in house. Eventually, you did yeah. leave the nest, and you went to Postmates, a consumer facing brand, and I think most people are generally familiar with. You hopped into the wonderful world of. I guess, food delivery or all-purpose delivery or however the company kind of shook out. What was your process for getting an in-house job and, and, and what were you looking for and how did Postmates fill that? I think that in terms of process, the Postmates job was on LinkedIn jobs and then Postmates was a client of Latham. So I was able to talk to the relationship partner a little bit about the work that he was doing for Postmates and he was able to, you know, nicely give me a recommendation. Definitely kind of hunted down uh, jobs on job boards, talked to as many people as I could, but going in-house as a litigator is a little bit more difficult. I think that right now jobs are plentiful in the in-house world and so that's awesome. But at the time there wasn't, I didn't see a clear path as to how I would get in-house and not be in some sort of a litigation or maybe product role. I definitely wasn't going to be able to go straight into a corporate role. That didn't seem like it would, it would happen. And so I initially 
took the Postmates role because I loved the team. I thought that it was very, you know, similar to Latham in terms of the personalities um, that I found there. It was a really small team. I think I was lawyer number five. And so we were still very much building out processes, figuring out kind of how we were going to organize a larger legal team as we scaled. And I came in as litigation counsel. For the first year, I was kind of managing the uh, company's litigation portfolio, which was dense. Uh, It's a company that by virtue of the industry it's in gets sued a lot. And so that was really interesting to see that side of the business. In year two, I switched to more product counseling. And so that was a much different job, but I thought that being a litigator prepared me well for kind of the issues that we saw on the product side. So I got to work on things like gift card launches. During the pandemic, we wanted to figure out a way to get money directly to merchants. And so we did this whole merchant gift cards offering. We were going to launch a rewards program Um, That didn't end up happening because of our acquisition by Uber, but worked on kind of that program um, with the product managers and engineers, worked on just all things having to do with the app as well as the website. We got questions a lot about, you know, where do we put this disclaimer? Where does this button go? Does this link have to be highlighted in blue and underlined. And so we got a lot of interesting issues on that side. And that was a great experience to kind of see the other side of the business that was more on the front line of how the product is developing rather than on the litigation side, it's all backwards looking. Yeah. So I like that you transitioned from a litigation council to a product council. It's it's a reasonably, it's, you know, something that's common. I, I, when I first went in-house, I was similarly in litigation and, and quickly gravitated towards the product. You mentioned kind of back then in, in the era, the, the heady days of like 2018, product council roles were, I don't know, not anywhere close to as plentiful as they are now, uh, even yeah. the concept. And I think we existed in law firms with this idea that, oh, you're a litigator. It's hard to go in-house, like it it takes some extra special effort. And I don't really think that's true anymore, or at least as true. But I am curious then, like what makes, when you are trained as a litigator, you're trained to do research and you're trained to view documentation and you're trained to write. How does that help you become a good product counsel? And what in your mind makes a good product counsel? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, being great at issue spotting, which is definitely a litigation skill that you develop. I think that what I, how I've tackled product counseling is, all right, take me through what you want to do, um, whether it's a new program that's going to be launched on an app, whether it is revising you know, terms and conditions a certain way, but have the product managers and the engineers take you through what they want to do look at it from a customer experience perspective and think about if I'm the customer, you know, what feels weird, what disclaimers am I going to want to see up front? 
what if I didn't see what I'd be surprised at once I'm all the way through and have paid for something. I think all of those things come up in litigation. Um, and so having experience with cases, whether it be breach of contract or even securities litigation, which is really based on the concept of fraud, um, all of that helped prepare me to be able to issue spot as a product counsel and have a different viewpoint than some of the engineers might have who are looking at it from a very, very different perspective than a lawyer. Um, yeah. So I think it, it did play in quite a bit. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that when you talk about issue spotting, there's this kind of mental transition you can make towards what the issues are. When you're issue spotting in litigation, you're kind of issue spotting for this these legal um, uh, or aspects yeah. in a, a, a line of cases that can fit into your pre-existing fact pattern. And in this version of issue spotting, kind of, you know, the best thing to know as opposed to like knowing reams of case law and, uh, or at least having access to um, uh, the research is knowing your company, knowing the company's goals, knowing the company's users or the users that it would like to have and mm -hmm. kind of taking these legal concepts into that framework and how can we improve, especially if you can get well aligned with the people who you're working with who are now no longer other lawyers, but are product people and engineers um, and marketing people. How can you help the customer? I mean, in the purest capitalistic sense, like use your product more <laughs> or, yeah. you know, uh, maybe in a, a, a more generous sense, um, how can you have the product help the customer as much as possible? Being able to transition your your kind of brain in 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 the vein of issue spotting that way, I think, is really important for product managers. Um, and uh, I think it's great that you were able to recognize that. Um, let's talk about milestones. Hey, party people. We had a bit of a technical snafu here, so we're just going to go ahead and jump to another milestone in Anna's career, her working at Postmates while it was acquired by Uber, and the fallout from that for both her and her colleagues' careers. Stay tuned. So you went through this process of getting acquired, doing the merger control, and you know it's a pretty significant event, and then you have to actually merge the companies. Yeah. So what was that like, and how did that affect you and and the work that you did <laughs> yeah it was uh it was a bit of a shit show and now having you know that was uh we were the target that was a sell side m a deal for me i've now done a couple of buy side deals and have have had to be in charge of what's the integration plan how are we going to integrate these employees into the company it is no small feat there's a lot to do I think that for us, the deal, the Uber deal closed sooner than either company expected. I thought, I think that we estimated it would be more like some point in, you know, Q1 2021, maybe even into Q2. And that deal closed for the end of the year of 2020. And so it was a bit of a scramble on the Uber side to figure out who are these people, what are they going to do? I think for me, I 
started to see, you know, how large a corporation like Uber was. And I knew even at my time at Postmates for a tech company, we still had a pretty sizable legal team. So I quickly realized that I wanted to join a smaller company where I could play a larger role. And so started the job search, cast a really wide net, talked to a lot of really cool companies, got in touch with Hippo's general counsel, really hit it off with the executive team. Um, you know, they were looking for kind of a number two position to the GC. And that was appealing to me to kind of take the step from being more of a specialist on the litigation and product side to finishing out my skill set. I needed the corporate experience. Hippo was in the process of a SPAC transaction. So in the process of going public, it was an opportunity to really run point on legal with respect to getting that deal to the finish line. And that was a challenge I was up for. I think for a while, you know, when you're the target of an M&A deal, sometimes you kind of just sit and wait for further <laughs> instruction. And you so, just let it wash over you. Yeah, yeah especially <laughs> for a merger where we didn't know if the app would still be in existence. Strategic perspective, I think Uber wanted to take on a competitor to grow its market share to compete with DoorDash. Right. And so we didn't know if they were going to keep the app around. And at that point in time, my work really revolved around the app. And so we actually froze development of different features of the product while the merger was being evaluated by the DOJ. I had a lot of free time and I think I was ready <laughs> for a new challenge. Um, and that led me into the role at Hippo. All right. So you, <laughs> you got some time. Uber was gobbling you up. You were kind of chilling because features were frozen and you had some time to leverage your connections to get introduced to some people to get your next role, which was something that give you the opportunity to broaden your skill set with, with some new events on the horizon, like going public via a SPAC at the height of SPAC mania, as well as get into that smaller legal team, as opposed to wading into Uber's massive legal empire <laughs> and staying there. So was the getting acquired process, it sounds like since you were the ones acquired, it wasn't as truly taxing an event from the work side as like going to trial was at Latham, but it seems like it was likely the most significant event of your Postmates career. When you think about the mental health side, that sort of thing that really you got a big picture of at Latham, did that really come about at Postmates in any way? Was, did the acquisition process and probably there was people similarly concerned for their jobs, concerned for redundancies, getting cut, wondering what's going to happen in the future. Literally, the app stopped developing. Yeah. Like, what, what, what kind of, I guess, takeaways on that level did you have from your Postmates experience? Yeah, I think that when the merger was announced, that it leaked the night before it was announced. And it was kind of mad hysteria among mm. the employees. On legal, we knew that it was a possibility because many of us had participated in the due diligence process, uh, mm -hmm. whether it was putting together certain sets of documents, putting together lists in response to diligence requests. But, you know, we had insight into it. I think that the 
broader employee base did not. And so I think it was a time of huge uncertainty for everybody in terms of, you know, some of us got kept on, some people got let go. I didn't want to continue on at Uber. And so I really didn't want to be kept on. And unfortunately, I was. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, unlike some M&A deals, they did not interview us individually or really talk to us on legal about like, what is your role? What do you do? We had no idea whether or not we were going to be kept on until it was announced. And so it was unfortunate that my best friend on the legal team was let go. I think he would have been much more interested in actually staying at Uber mm. um, than I was. And so a part of me after the fact was kind of crushed that we couldn't have you know, swapped places. Right. Um, and so the uncertainty was definitely, was definitely there. I would say that the level of work wasn't, even going yeah. through the merger control process, from an in-house legal perspective, that wasn't a huge lift. And so I, I think that when I think about like large mental health events in my legal career, it was definitely like, a time of, of uncertainty, <laughs> but I yeah. would say at Postmates, we enjoyed like a, a great work-life balance. It was really a 180 from having a tough sixth year at Latham to probably working half of what I was working on it on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly something to be said for a transition from a law firm like Latham to a tech company that's fairly well established yeah. as, as even opposed to like a startup or something along those lines. So instead you left and you went to Hippo and Hippo was in the process of getting ready to SPAC. I think you need to teach us like first, what is Hippo? And sure. then what's a SPAC? <laughs> yeah, no, great questions. Um, Hippo is an insure tech company. You may have heard of Lemonade or Root Insurance. We are both an agency business and we acquired an insurance company in late 2020. And so we are no longer just a managing agent. We also have an insurance company that writes our policies. Can you tell us what does that mean? What's a managing agent? What's an insurance company? As far as I know, Hippo Insurance is an insurance company. So break that down for me. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, technically we're not even allowed to say we're an insurance company <laughs> for various <laughs> regulatory reasons, but so an agency sells policies an insurance company is actually underwriting the policies and taking on the risk. And so if you're an agent, you're connecting an insurance company to a customer. If you're an insurance company, you're actually underwriting the policy. And so you are the actual insurer on the policy rather than kind of being the connector between customer and insurance company. And so we still do both. We sell our own HIPAA policies. We also sell other insurance companies' policies. What is the, are there advantages to be gained, unit economics to be gained from being both? Why does this split exist? Are, are, are there efficiencies to be gained from only being an agency? I could liken this to FinTech, like having a license um, versus being a software company like Chime. And you might say in today's day and age, you're actually more nimble 
not having a license, using a bank partner, being a software company, working on that level. I'm curious if insurance works the same way and why Hippo has chosen to do both and or bifurcate those things. Yeah, I think that it's a hot topic among insurtechs right now, as some are set up like Hippo with both an agency side, as well as having an insurance company that's underwriting policies. I think that, you know, one advantage of having an insurance company under your umbrella is that those policies will be able to be written. Um, you, mm. will, you will not have to rely on other insurance companies to underwrite policies. And so that's one advantage. A disadvantage is that you are taking on partially the risk of those policies. So for example, last year, we saw like the Texas storms because we have a large number of customers in Texas that affected us more significantly because we actually have the insurance company business rather than a pure agency business. Got it. And before the fintech people come after me for my last comment, I should also acknowledge that there's a very clear trend of those tech companies without licenses then saying, oh, well, not actually make money. We need a license. Um, so yeah. uh, shout out to SoFi, Varo Bank, Square, <laughs> um, all of those like tech former tech companies that went and got banking licenses. Okay, so Hippo, if you go to the website, says modern home insurance. So what makes it modern? Yeah, so we have smart home technology that you can self-install in your home. And that type of technology does a number of different things. It can be as simple as putting, you know, a device on your faucet that's going to auto stop water from running after a certain amount of time. All of the devices are set up to function so that you will have fewer claims. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of helping both ways. You know, it helps us to be paying out fewer claims. It helps the customer to have fewer claims that they have to report. And so the smart home stuff is pretty cool. It's something that we, you know, haven't seen other insurance companies do, particularly, you know, the big name insurance companies that have been around for years and years and years um, that have kind of stayed the same in terms of their model and their offerings. Yeah. So random idea pops into my head. Uh, maybe we can brainstorm. Maybe this is like, I'm going to call this segment Startup Corner. So Startup Corner, I live in Oakland at the base of hills. And since California is kind of a perpetually on fire state in 2022, a lot of people around where I live and up in the hills have trouble getting, maintaining, keeping their home insurance because of fire danger and, or, you know, there's wineries in Napa that can't get insurance because of yeah. fire danger. And yep. what you mentioned about like kind of the technology is there, is there like an angle that Hippo or some theoretical, even more extra modern insurance company might say, oh, we have ways to, I don't know, protect you from a fire or specifically underwrite your more specific risk around a fire. So we'll insure you, we'll give you a, you know, we'll give you a, an insurance policy where others wouldn't. I guess the question is, is that similar to how Hippo thinks about 
things uh, because there are fewer claims are you able to maybe insure more people and do you want to help me build my fire insurance uh, startup <laughs> <laughs> definitely on number two though you know i of course do not have a background in insurance and on the legal side really stay more on the corporate technology side rather than the insurance side. We have a number of insurance regulatory lawyers that would be able to answer all of these questions much more eloquently than, than I can. But I will say that, yeah, I think that that in terms of long-term vision is, is very much the goal of being able to prevent claims before they've started through the use of technology. With respect to fires, I you know, do not know that that technology exists at this point in time. But I think that's exactly right, that being able to help the homeowner prevent disasters before they strike is a win-win situation for both the insurer as well as the homeowner. And so that that is very much the mission of the company. Got it. I think someone once said sweep the forests or something like that, 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 that <laughs> may or may not have been our former president. Um, so and I was actually going to ask you about if your role requires expertise in insurance. And it sounds like you have a legal team with varied skill sets that enables you guys to do different types of things. So now that you are, you've gone into somewhat of a broader role, what would you say is your main effect on the product of hippo insurance as more of a generalist attorney? Yeah, I would say that with respect to the product, I still do quite a bit of product and privacy counseling. And so we're soon launching an app. You know, I've done quite a bit of work on that. Having to understand the interplay of the privacy laws that affect an insurance company has been a big learning curve for me. We're regulated by the CCPA as well as the GLBA, which applies to insurance companies and financial institutions. The interplay between those two is very interesting. The CCPA being California's Privacy Act. That's the right. GLBA is a, you're going to have to help me out on that one. Yeah, the GLB is the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. Ah, and as a fintech yeah. guy, I probably should have known that. But, uh, maybe <laughs> no we'll worries. This. Yeah, so... With respect to the product itself, certainly have worked on product and privacy counseling around the website, around the app that's launching. I would say that my role is more so focused on the SEC reporting side, um, the corporate governance side, working with the board of directors, um, working on potential acquisitions that we've seen along the way. Um, it's been much, much more corporate heavy than any other, you know, role I've ever had, which is really interesting. And sometimes I think about, you know, going back to Latham and doing it again, would I've been a better corporate attorney? I'm not sure, but I, I certainly <laughs> do enjoy the corporate stuff. I think, especially as an in-house lawyer, getting to work with fantastic capital markets and M&A lawyers at Latham has been a great learning experience for me. I think that those partners have really mentored me along the way. Um, coming into an experience where I did not have a corporate background and we were, you know, launching into 
completing this SPAC. And yeah. I was like, let me Google what SPAC means because <laughs> <laughs> I've never done this before. Fortunately, it was a lot of folks' first rodeo, uh, including the lawyers. I mean, SPACs are, became popular as of recent, and the rules were developing as we were doing you know, our SPAC transaction. And so in a way, it was super scary, but in a way, we were all learning as we went. And so um, it was one of those you know, trial-like times where we were all you know, in the war room doing it, though virtually, but I got to become close with coworkers um, very, very quickly because we were all hands on deck to get the SPAC closed. Got it. And so just to orient around what a SPAC is, a SPAC is also known as a blank check company. It's a company that doesn't do anything like a shell company that goes public through an IPO mm -hmm. process generally at uh, $10 a share. And its goal is within a set period of time to quote unquote merge or acquire a private company to take that company public. And there is, uh, if it doesn't do it in a certain period of time, it returns the money to the investors who invested in the company uh, through its IPO process. One advantage for the private company in merging with this SPAC, as opposed to an IPO, is that is a faster, simpler, uh, I don't know about cleaner, but a, it's a speedier process, maybe with a little bit less diligence and scrutiny around your company in terms of going public, which, you know, can be good or bad. And, and much more recently in SPACs, we've seen some of the fintech SPACs very much not do well, especially because as of the time of this recording, the market itself is, is crashing into oblivion. But um, <laughs> uh, for you at Hippo, and, and, and correct me if I got anything wrong there for how the process worked for you guys, for you, how did you go about learning what to do in this situation as a lifelong litigator slash product person? Yeah, I was really lucky to have Latham as our corporate counsel, especially working with folks at Latham that, you know, were in our summer class, the senior associate on our SPAC. I remember my first week calling him being like, you got to sit down with me. Just give me high level. What are the project streams? What are we doing right now? Because everyone was running around and no one was really like sitting down to talk to me about how can I be useful? What are the verticals that we're working on? And I would say that a SPAC can be divided into a few different work streams. So there's the actual merger between the target, so HIPPO, and the SPAC, the Special Purpose Acquisition Company. So you've got an M&A deal going on. You're negotiating the terms of the merger agreement. So that's one work stream. And we were working with you know, Latham M&A partner and associates on the merger agreement. There's then the SEC side. So that's, you know, capital markets work. We were putting together our S4, which is very similar to in a traditional IPO and S1, putting together that public filing with the Latham cap markets team. There's also the pipe, which is the part of the deal that would be like a traditional IPO's roadshow where you're getting investors to invest in the merged company 
which was going to be hippo at the end. And so there's that process going on in parallel. There's so much going on at once. I was kind of flipping from one thing to another because the M&A side, there's a lot to be done with respect to diligence and getting everything to the spec that we needed to get and then negotiating the terms of the merger agreement, the S4, I had some familiarity with because at Postmates, I worked on our S1 as we were you know, looking to go public. Also from Securities Lit, I had read risk factors before. I had some familiarity with you know, how a company describes its, its business to prospective shareholders. I would say that I did not participate as much in the pipe process. Um, that was really our CFO and CEO running that with our bankers. Yeah, so you were, you spent, you know, nearly a decade as a litigator, product person, and all of a sudden you're entering this like very significant financial transaction. Thankfully for you, you had analogs from your time, you know, in securities litigation. You had help with very experienced outside counsel, and you're able to rely on the fact that, you know, kind of your job as in house counsel is to, understand the company, know the company, know how laws and actions taken are going to reflect directly on the company. I will say kudos to you for being so loyal to Latham in your post-law firm career in a way that I certainly never have been. And if, if anybody <laughs> listens to this podcast, I might be uh, looking at them for some money for all these plugs they're getting, but uh, um, shout out, shout out, shout out to our previous employer. For sure. Let me get from you a takeaway, what I would really love to just get from you is your take on legal career navigation, something that people should know, something that people can take away from having listened to this podcast from, from all the different things that you've done and participated in. Yeah, it, it makes me think of something that Bob Sims uh, told me Another early Latham on. Plug. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's them all over. Um, but Bob Sims told me early on, he was like, whatever you do, just make sure you're not just defaulting into a career, just getting sort of put into a group because you signed up for an assignment and then you started working with a partner and then you just kept on going without really thinking, is this what I want to be doing? And I think that it took me a while to think hard on that and I for sure reached points at Latham that led me to the light of, you know, this is not for me. I think that I had moments of reaching rock bottom. Um, I was just recalling with a friend, like, I think my, and maybe not everyone has like a Latham rock bottom experience, <laughs> but uh, I remember a time in... 2018, I was working a lot on one case. It was very intense. We didn't have a lot of staffing. Um, it was a great learning experience in terms of learning how to do kind of every single filing you could possibly do in state court and running point on kind of a small M&A deal gone wrong type of litigation. But I remember feeling like I couldn't do it anymore. And like, I didn't know how I was going to get through the end of the year. And the case 
was looking like it was going to trial. We had so many depositions. There was only one partner and one associate other than me on the case, and he was a really junior associate. And I remember, like, in the fall of 2018, meeting my friend outside of the GMC that's off of Montgomery Street and, like, (laughs) getting Adderall from him. And he looked at me and was like, Anna, you've got to promise me that, like, you're not going to keep doing this and, like, killing yourself doing it. Not that taking Adderall is killing yourself by any means, but I think that, you know, I look back and while it was a kind of a dark experience for my mental health, for sure, I really took a step back at that point in time and was like, whoa, what am I doing right now? I can't get through the day. And I think that, you know, it's a side that I didn't always show at work. I tried to be the good associates committee member and tried to mostly be the listener, tried to put on a good face and look put together, but it was a really tough time for me. And I think that it was necessary for me to reach that point. But, you know, when my friend said that, I was like, you know what? Yeah, like I've got to turn this shit around and I can't keep doing this and I can't you know, rely on drugs to get me through this, like, there's got to be another way. And at that point in time, I really made the decision that next year, I'm going to go in house. And so much weight was lifted off my shoulders. When I made that decision, because I was still just kind of defaulting into like, do as much as you possibly can. I was working every single day. I was so stressed about the prospect of this case going to trial. Um, That was a really important moment because I was like, oh my God, the worst thing that could happen is like for (laughs) the case to go to trial. Whereas a lot of people are like dying for that opportunity. I was like, please let this case settle. Um, We ended up winning the MSJ, which was awesome. And then we actually won a motion for attorney's fees, which was great. But it was that moment where I was like, maybe this is my rock bottom, but I'm deciding that it's time. Yeah. And that was, that was really important. Absolutely. And it goes back to uh, not defaulting into things. And, and I mean, thank you for telling that story that I think that's uh, yeah pretty illuminating. I think we can agree. Like we don't endorse performance enhancing drugs Uh, in a legal career, in a sports career, in anything like that, especially anything that's not prescribed for you by a doctor. And you can think through like feeling that you needed something to kind of continue and looking at that as a moment where it's time for some self-reflection and turning that into a positive and turning that into some action that you can take, whatever that might be. Anna, thank you so much for being on the pod. Um, this was, uh, I hate saying the pod, (laughs) like like I'm like, I'm a freaking, uh, on crooked media or whatever, but, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the, if then podcast. I think this was a fantastic episode and illuminating episode about mental health, about significant events in your career, about, uh, about career navigation. And that's what things are all about here. We're really looking forward to continuing to see your career through. Anna, where, where can people find you? 
Sure. Email me at A-E-B-E-R-C-E-S at gmail.com. And please add me on LinkedIn. I love connecting to people in tech, in law and tech, in big law. You know, if any of this resonated with you or if you just want someone to talk to, I would absolutely love that. I, I feel like there's nothing more fulfilling to me than getting to help younger lawyers kind of navigate this profession. Please contact me in any way, shape, or form. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. This has been an episode of the If Then podcast. If you are interested in joining or partnering with the If Then community, uh, feel free to shoot me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Otherwise, do interesting work that you're interested in. Good night, everyone. See you.